to the responsibility to protect. Words kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. crimes. Timely and appropriate action. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streitfeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. In this episode, I am joined by the Honorable Gareth Evans. Gareth's illustrious career includes being a long-serving cabinet minister and foreign minister in the Australian government, president and CEO of the International Crisis Group, and chancellor of the Australian National University. Those of us in the atrocity prevention and R2P community know Gareth as one of the architects of R2P due to his role on the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty. And I've had the absolute privilege of working with him for over a decade in his capacity as chair of the Global Center's International Advisory Board. Thank you for joining us today, Gareth. Great pleasure to join you, Jackie, as always. Uh, many of our listeners are, are likely already familiar with your name and uh, what role you played in shaping R2P. Maybe not the depths of that role, but uh, they certainly know your name alongside the term R2P. So I wanted to start by taking a step a little further back in your personal history. Uh, In your memoir, Incorrigible Optimist, you detail that the genocide in Cambodia spurred your ambition to try to change the way the world thinks and acts in response to genocide and other major crimes against humanity. Can you tell us about how that shaped your worldview and the steps you took towards the eventual creation of R2P? Well, the genocide in Cambodia had a very direct personal impact on me because just a few years earlier, I had been backpacking my way across Asia, Middle East, Europe to study in England and spent a lot of time in all of the Southeast Asian countries, including Cambodia, and met a, there, as I did everywhere, a number of vital, intelligent, engaged, sophisticated young Cambodians, university students, I hung out with them, I ate noodles and drank beer and went up the, the dusty road to see them reap. And it was, was just a great experience. But then seven years later, I realized that every one of those kids that I'd met was no longer alive. I mean, they had either been murdered outright as intellectuals, uh, they'd been starved or worked to death in the, in the killing fields. And it was just that sort of that personal dimension. Of course, I'd been familiar with Anne Frank and uh, Babi Yar, which has now come back to to haunt us in in Kiev. I was familiar with um, stories of the Holocaust, not least from many Jewish friends at uh, school and university. But that immediate impact of recognising that particular individuals uh, had been the the victims of this terrible, terrible uh, genocidal onslaught um, really, really motivated me. And that that passion has remained with me um, ever since. I tried uh, when I was foreign minister for nearly eight years as Australia's foreign minister to to generate a response to Rwanda and some of the other things that were occurring through the 90s. 
but felt a sense of real impotence about that because there just was no international consensus at all about how to respond to these atrocity crimes that broke out again on a massive scale in the 90s. We all remember the story of Rwanda. We remember Srebrenica, Kosovo. And I just was therefore really happy to be asked by the Canadian government to co-chair this commission, which would wrestle with the issue of building an international consensus where none existed. The big problem was the global north talked the talk about humanitarian intervention, military intervention, but didn't really walk the walk. And the global south uh, wouldn't even talk the talk because they hated the whole idea of imperialist, macho military interventions. They were very conscious of their, their independence, their fragility in the past and a long history of imperialist overreach. So the world was just a sort of consensus-free zone. So um, what we were able to do in that commission was confront head-on all these arguments about sovereignty trumping intervention and come up with a, with a completely new approach, which I did does seem to have been um, successful, at least in building a, a normative consensus about that. So that, that's how I got into this. That's how I... Uh, I felt continually engaged and frustrated in my time in government. But then after I left government and was asked to chair this this commission or co-chair it, um, that then gave me the opportunity to translate all those those very strong feelings into some practical blueprint for action. I think the the commission really had quite the task ahead of it, not only because of these very frustrations you've identified – but because the tools that were available to the international community at the time did have a lot of complications to piece through. And in your book, you mentioned that the the commission tackled numerous elements regarding the international community's response to atrocity times that are now becoming some of the most challenging aspects of R2P's implementation, including limitations to the protection of civilians agenda, which obviously was in its own developmental phase at the time. Um, the need to emphasize prevention, the connection to international law and the UN Charter, as well as um, Security Council dynamics, which are constantly plaguing both response under R2P and response more generally. So can you reflect a little on how the commission addressed these elements when drafting the report? Yeah, I think what we recognized we needed to do was to reshape thinking about this issue in a number of ways. And the contribution that we made, I think, can be can be listed as, as four, four distinct things. First, we changed the language of the debate by introducing this concept of the responsibility to protect rather than the right to intervene. And that had much more potential traction with the global south than the language of the, the right to, to throw your weight around. Secondly, we very much focused on the need to... Uh, embrace a much wider range of actors than just the military big guys. Uh, We said the responsibility to protect was that of the sovereign state itself. It was the responsibility of many other states in the international community who had the capacity to assist states uh, to to deal with these situations occurring within their own boundaries. And the responsibility lay in the wider international community to respond effectively uh, when prevention had broken down and when uh, serious atrocity crimes were occurring. So we we did that. We, the third thing we did was to make it very clear that the range of responses uh, that 
we were focusing on were much, much broader than the, uh, the, the traditional focus of humanitarian intervention on just the military stuff. Uh, we focused on preventive strategies, a reactive toolbox, which had many more elements in it than just the military one. I mean, sanctions, persuasion, diplomatic naming and shaming and all the rest of it. And we focused on post, post-crisis peace building, which is itself, again, a preventive uh, enterprise, I guess, to stop horrors recurring. So we, we, we focused on a whole range of, um, of things of that kind, which hadn't previously been part of the, the repertoire. We focused finally uh, on the need to identify with a lot more precision what the criteria for military intervention should be in circumstances where it was obvious that only military intervention um, could possibly stop an atrocity that was occurring. And whereas that had been completely left in a sort of a fuzzy zone, we tried to articulate the specifics. First of all, we said that there had to be legality, and that meant Security Council endorsement if you're going to involve yourself in the use of military force. But it also involved a set of prudential criteria, which we articulated with some precision. Uh, the need for there to be a threshold degree of seriousness of the, the threat to human life or whatever that was involved. There needed to be uh, the right intent, a proper motivation, that the intervention was there not to serve some other economic purpose but to genuinely protect uh, people at risk. There had to be an element of last resort, um, making being sure that military option really was the only one. There had to be an element of proportionality uh, that the military response was was appropriately geared to the scale of the uh, the action that was occurring and finally uh, the notion of consequences um, that the the military intervention had to do more good than harm and not just trigger a, a larger a larger confrontation now all those contributions uh, were distinctly different from what had been the debate before yes the protection of civilians in armed conflict uh, concept had taken hold uh, just about the time a year or two earlier than we were coming up with our report. But that was very limited in scope to, um, to civilian uh, atrocities occurring in the context of armed conflict. And, of course, that wouldn't have dealt with the two, the two really big ones, Cambodia and Rwanda, neither of which involved situations of armed conflict but unquestionably involved massive-scale atrocity crimes. So what we wanted to do was to come up with a, with a universal set of, uh, of concepts and criteria which would, would work and be normatively attractive in all the different contexts in which uh, atrocity crimes erupted. And I think, you know, basically, well, well, we'll come to how well we succeeded, how much the reality met the dream in a moment. But um, at least in coming up with all that as we did and then getting that embraced uh, unanimously, extraordinarily, uh, by the 2005 World Summit, the UN General Assembly sitting at head of government and head of state level, was really a pretty extraordinary diplomatic achievement. And uh, we can't rest on our laurels, but we should not, I think, looking back, uh, fail to recognise the, the scale of the, the difference that um, that report made. Absolutely. I think, you know, we often talk about even just an awareness of the atrocities language, um, I feel has shifted dramatically over the past 20 years. Um, and I'm glad that you brought up the, the prudential criteria aspect of uh, your work because Examining the list of atrocity situations since 2005, 
I think many people conclude that R2P has at best a mixed record of success and often those claiming R2P doesn't work or who ring, you know, R2P's death knell reach that conclusion based on a lack of UN Security Council authorized military action. They're exclusively focused on intervention and the military stuff. Uh, we've witnessed this over the past decade with Syria, uh, but also most recently with the coup in Myanmar, where civilians actively called for an R2P intervention and critics sort of said, well, see, there won't be an intervention, so R2P is failing, uh, as well as with the invasion in Ukraine now. So um, beyond the prudential criteria, are there clarifications you would provide in response to those criticisms? Well, I think we need to recognise that there's not just one benchmark by which you assess the the credibility and utility of R2P. There are, in fact, four. And I would identify them, first of all, as, as the normative dimension, whether the, the worldview has, in fact, changed, whether people are at least paying lip service, maybe it's only lip service, but whether they're at least doing that in a way they didn't before to the need to respond to these cases. Um, and in that respect, on the, against that benchmark, I think you're right in saying that it, there's just a very different atmosphere in terms of what people at least acknowledge in principle and how they express this and is, is evidenced in General Assembly debates. Uh, it, it, it really has got a lot of traction. There are very, very few countries that say that atrocities are nobody's business, nobody else's business when they occur behind sovereign state borders. Nobody's, nobody asserts that anymore. They find all sorts of other reasons for avoiding taking action and ducking and weaving, but they don't challenge the normative thing. And that's, that's important. And that's still there. Um, the second dimension of it, uh, benchmark, I think, is, is changing the institutional um, structures and environment in which our capacity to respond effectively, whether it's through preventive mechanisms or reactive mechanisms, is, is greater. And we've, we've done a lot there, and the centre has been leading the way in a lot of that. Um, it's much better military preparedness now to deal with the kind of interventions that are needed in these cases, which are not full-scale war fighting, but really sort of extended um, uh, gendarmerie-type uh, peacekeeping operations. There's much more attention to the, the civilian dimension of preparedness that's needed and the kind of strategies uh, that are so important to deploy to deal with emerging situations. Um, the third benchmark is how successful we've been as a preventive mechanism. And, of course, the thing with prevention uh, always is that, by definition, when you succeed at prevention, nothing very visible happens. Therefore, many people just take no notice. But there are many, many cases, um, and still occurring to this day, where R2P is being invoked as the relevant concept. And the UN... Uh, African Union, other sub-regional organisations, other individual states are all doing their best to apply preventive mechanisms to stop things happening. And, and I think there have been many successes in that area. They've been well documented by the centre. My favourite example in that respect, I think, is, is Burundi, um, which is, sits next door to Rwanda, has exactly, really almost identical demographic characteristics, has an equally sad and savage history of major atrocities occurring and which has been sitting on the edge of a volcano probably for the last 20 years. But every time it's, that volcano has looked like erupting, 
uh, the UN, um, the Security Council, the African Union or others have thrown themselves into the diplomatic task of trying to you know, dampen things down and, and stabilise the situation. And uh, nobody, nobody's noticed as a result that it's been a success. Where, where the problem has arisen, as you identify and as everybody identifies, is in uh, effective reaction when situations really have careered out of control. And it's frankly been a pretty sad history, as you acknowledge, with uh, Sri Lanka, with Yemen, with Myanmar, um, and above all, of course, um, Syria. Uh, we started pretty well in this respect, um, and I think the turning point came in, um, in 2011 with the intervention in Syria, which was a, the initial intervention in the face of a, an anticipated major massacre by Gaddafi of uh, dissenting forces against him within that country. Uh, and uh, you know, the Security Council did agree on a military intervention, which was successful in stopping that massacre. This was R2P working militarily exactly as those of us who generated the, the idea and had hoped it would. But um, things went, went very pear-shaped, I'm afraid. Um, it's a long and complicated story, and I'll only tell it in, in two sentences. I mean, what happened was that the, uh, the NATO forces, the P3 on the Security Council, uh, the Americans, the Brits and the French, um, decided that um, only a regime change uh, was the acceptable outcome for that intervention and went about pursuing regime change without bringing the rest of the Security Council with them. It was a good argument that the only way you could protect civilians was through the regime change, not just from military intervention at 20,000 feet, but uh, nonetheless, there was an arrogance about the way in which the P3 handled themselves, which, which generated a, a very, very strong negative reaction. And that fed immediately into the initial response to Syria, when Syria was at a very early stage and when the Security Council condemnation, not necessarily military action, but a condemnation even, or sanctions would have, would have made a difference. And it's been a sad and sorry tale um, since then. And of course, um, you know, the, the task of, of rebuilding consensus on the Security Council uh, in these hardest of cases, and to get authorization for military action, not many in that category, but in those hardest of cases, it's going to be very, very difficult indeed. Uh, Russia and China have always been uh, potential spoilers in this respect, and now with events in Ukraine and uh, Russia behaving as it is and manifestly uh, being as unwilling as it is to engage in any normatively decent behaviour at all. The idea of Russia uh, coming back and joining a consensus uh, to intervene militarily somewhere else is, is pretty far-fetched. But let's keep all this in context. What matters is prevention. What matters is at least the normative belief that we need to do something in these cases. What matters is institutional preparedness. What matters is... is, is building further credibility for institutions like the International Criminal Court. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's, that's happening. The Americans, for all practical purposes, are now supportive of that court in a way that wasn't the case, uh, you know, when they refused to formally join it. And bit by bit by bit, um, you know, that, um, that institutional framework is developing. And we're seeing that again in the context of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where uh, the, the international response has been, has been huge. It hasn't been generated until very recently by concern about atrocity crimes. That response has been generated by Russia's breach of that other big norm about um, not invading another country and uh, 
perpetrating the crime of aggression. But now that atrocities are coming to light, um, there's, a, there's a very strong hunger visible out there in all, all sorts of parts of the international community, not just the traditional Western ones, for some effective response through the International Criminal Court or other institutional mechanisms. So putting all that you know, together, I think the story has not been the one of uh, unmitigated success that we all dreamed of, uh, but the notion that R2P is, uh, is dead is just, uh, I think, completely misconceived. There's perhaps one other point to make in the context of the issue about prudential criteria that you probably want me to pick up on, and that is that there's always been a limitation on the capacity to apply military action in certain situations, particularly involving great or major powers. The notion of being able to engage China in military action if they really went completely over the top in Xinjiang, the notion even of engaging Russia, um, you know, when it, in, in some of the stuff that it was doing in, in Chechnya, for example, earlier on, um, it, it's really just inconceivable that military action could be could could be sensibly applied in these cases because what you would be doing is is inevitably triggering a much wider major war and you would run headlong into that prudential criterion of the balance of consequences that uh, what you're doing is not doing more good than harm but but actually doing more harm than good and that's the that's the issue that has to be constantly borne in mind it's not it's not a matter of double standards it's not a matter of hypocrisy saying some states are you know, can and should be able to get away with atrocity behaviour. It's a matter just of recognising the reality that in these cases, military action is not going to work. And what you've got to do is use the other mechanisms in the toolbox, which might be notionally less effective, but um, are ultimately pretty crucial. And the sort of, t sort of tools that we're talking about that are now being applied uh, against Russia um, are all pretty important. Um, the, uh, you know, identification of potential war crimes and and uh, potential subjection to the International Criminal Court of the Russian uh, leadership, uh, the kind of sanctions that are being applied, all of these are, are very useful mechanisms and we shouldn't, we shouldn't downplay their significance. Absolutely. Um, I think we've seen enormous response to the, the situation in Ukraine, obviously short of military action, but kind of the almost the full range of the toolbox at work in recent weeks um, at a speed that we have not seen on other atrocity situations in the past. I was going to ask you <laughs> if um, the way that the world has evolved since Syria and Libya has, has changed your worldview or altered your optimism on um, whether the world can improve its capacity to respond to atrocities. But I think that what you've said so far has made it very clear that you are, um, as always, still an optimist on this. Well, I, I describe myself in my memoirs title as incorrigible optimist. I have to say that optimism has been tested um, by the <laughs> events in, um, in Syria and Myanmar and Yemen and Sri Lanka in particular over the years. But I think it is absolutely crucial for all of us in this business to maintain our optimism. I often make the point that sort of optimism is self-reinforcing in exactly the same way as pessimism is self-defeating. If you're going to get out of bed in the morning, you've got to believe 
that what you're doing can possibly make a difference in the longer run. Because if you don't even try to make a difference, um, then manifestly nothing will happen. And all of us can make a difference. NGOs can make a difference. Individuals through their engagement um, in you know, political action and support for effective responses in these situations. They can get messages through to political leaders and things things can change over time. I mean, uh, I, I do think the Russian thing is going to be going to be a watershed. Um, it's not going to help us get get uh, unanimous resolutions on the Security Council because I think Russia is going to be such a pariah uh, for so many more years that uh, the notion of it being a Maybe maybe things will be different post-Putin, but uh, right now it's difficult to see Russia being a constructive player, and China is uh, is playing this uh, this game of sort of sitting on the fence and not being a particularly constructive help either in these cases. So probably the notion of getting you know Security Council uh, focused behaviour is is a bit of a pipe dream for the foreseeable future. But there's so much else we we can be doing and continuing to work on these other institutional mechanisms to get support for them, um, for states to apply their universal jurisdiction. This um, this concept that um, you know, which is available in international customary law that um, that states can in fact. Um, prosecute people who've perpetrated crimes against humanity uh, if they come within their own jurisdiction or if there's some other opportunity to do so. There's all sorts of ways in which you can make life hideously difficult for the perpetrators of these crimes. And that's what we should be, I think, focusing our attention on. The big shift that occurred with R2P was away from this single-minded focus on military intervention as the be-all and end-all. Remember what people were talking about right through the 90s. It was humanitarian intervention. It was the right to intervene. And, and that has always been just a, you know, a limiting approach which was never going to win the kind of consensus that was necessary for there to be effective international action. Responsibility to protect has changed the way people think and talk and act in these cases. And uh, we should be, I think all of us, um, the centre in particular, the work you're doing, um, you know, we should be pretty proud of what's been achieved and not feel deterred or not feel depressed by the, uh, by the difficult cases that continue to arise. Exactly. And uh, certainly, I think we have reached a point where military response typically is not the first option that the mind goes to in these situations. Um, there are a lot of other things in the toolbox that we typically want to exhaust first before we even consider what a military option would look like. Um, I want to turn now to the book you just published, uh, which is called Good International Citizenship, The Case for Decency, uh, which I think overlaps very much with a lot of these R2P relevant topics. Um, you mentioned in the book that there is a, both a moral imperative and a national interest imperative to be a good international citizen. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that idea a little bit. Yeah, the traditional conduct of foreign policy focuses on just two kinds of national interest, security, geopolitical interests, and economic prosperity interests. And everything else for many, many foreign policy players in national governments is a kind of optional extra, whether you're uh, 
generous in your aid, whether you're active in your promotion internationally of universal human rights standards, whether you are responsive to peace and security issues in faraway places where you don't have an immediate security benefit to flow from getting involved in those countries, your response to atrocity crimes, again, in faraway countries where there's nothing much to be gained in terms of your own country's national security and certainly not your economic prosperity, uh, but which are nonetheless sort of crying out for some sort of moral response. Nonetheless, these things are seen far too often as optional extras, as sort of the, the kind of Boy Scout good deeds you do if your budget is up to it or if there's some internal pressure group pushing you to respond, which makes it politically necessary to be seen to be doing something. My point is that all this bundle of issues, what I call the decency issues, uh, being and being seen to be a good international citizen in all these fronts. My point is that this is not only a moral imperative, but it's a national interest in its own right. And countries that do act and are seen to be acting for purposes beyond themselves, not just focused on immediate security returns or economic returns, are countries that have a really high standing in the international community. There are reputational returns for being a good international citizen, exercising what's also being often called soft power in this respect, being the kind of country that people warm to, trust, want to emulate. There are reputational returns. There are reciprocity returns. If I'm seen to be acting in response to your national disaster or other internal problem helping you resolve uh, atrocity crimes being perpetrated by some non-state actor, that country will be that much more inclined to help you with your you know, refugee outflows or, or other, or maybe even just support for some vote in an international body. There's a reciprocity return, there's a hard-headed return of that kind. And um, my, my point is simply that um, you know, we, we too often neglect in our foreign policy discourse Australia is no exception. I don't think any country is an exception. These things, we see them as sort of value issues, which are not the same as interest issues. And my argument is they're very much interest issues as well as value issues, and we ought to see them in those terms. So, you know, the kind of uh, response that um, we ought to be mounting to atrocity crimes in Myanmar or Yemen or Sri Lanka, uh, whether it's, um, you know, whatever the, the, the toolbox you're talking about, this, this, to me, is quintessential good international citizenship. This is, this is quintessential behaviour of the kind that um, the, the countries ought to behave, uh, ought to engage in, not just because there's a, there's a self-evident moral imperative to do so. Uh, in every culture in the world, I think there's, uh, you know, the moral reasoning points the same way, whatever, however you get there uh, through religious or humanistically derived ethical um, systems. Um, the moral imperative is obvious, but my, my argument in, in this little little book I've just written is, is one that's addressed to the hardheads, the political realists, the cynics in government that say this is really just optional stuff. Um, the the community is not really very interested in this stuff and uh, we're only going to do it if we, in really exceptional cases, not just mainstream cases. I think that's nonsense. I think the, there's plenty of evidence that the community will go with you when you're seen to be um, generous and responsive and 
and just simpatico on these sorts of issues. And uh, that's been my story in an Australian context. I think it's very relevant in many other country contexts as well. Do you have any uh, recent examples of of states, I guess, in, in the, the atrocity prevention world um, who have been fulfilling this good international citizenship? <laughs> Not many have been doing it very systematically. I mean, we... The quintessential good international citizen players, I suppose, traditionally have been the Scandinavians who've been very generous with their aid, they've been very actively engaged on human rights issues, have contributed enormous resources to peacekeeping, and who have generally had their voices um, heard uh, when these situations erupt. Scandinavians, for the most part, fill that bill. Uh, Canadians, with a spectacular exception during the Harper administration period, have always traditionally been self-consciously good international citizens and uh, and I think highly respected around the world as a result. Uh, New Zealand is, is another Western country, our neighbour, that's, uh, that's got a very good reputation in that respect. Australia has periodically behaved in this way, but um, not nearly enough to, to my satisfaction, which is one of the reasons that I, uh, I wrote this little book. Um, other, other countries have, have come in and out of the, uh, the game. And I'm not just talking about the Western countries. I mean, um, there's, there's um, a number of the Africans. I mean, Kenya, South Africa periodically have been quite prominent in advocating and articulating um, these sorts of um, approaches to international behaviour. I wish it were a bit more widespread in, in Asia. Um, Asian countries do tend to be a bit more inward-looking and less instinctively engaged in these sort of outreach issues when um, when their own security or prosperity is not immediately uh, involved. So there's a lot of work to be done to, to generate this. But I think there's enough examples around the world of countries that um, have acted in this way consistently and whose reputation has been enhanced as a result to make it, uh, to make it an attractive course for every country to follow. Certainly. And I mean, I know from from the Global Center's own work that, um, for example, the the Gambia taking the Myanmar case to the ICJ has certainly given them a great deal of credibility uh, in this regard. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. I think that Gambia initiative going to the the court is just just absolutely terrific and um, exactly the kind of thing that um, small countries can do which make the rest of the world, you know, sit up and take notice. And um, I think the role of the centre in helping that little exercise along is one that um, you guys can very much pat yourselves on the back for. So I guess turning to the um, to current events and the situation in Ukraine, you know, I, we touched on this briefly already, but I think that Ukraine and the international response over the past month has has really shown the volume of items in the toolbox and and different things that states around the world can can try to do to respond to an atrocity situation from the kind of more traditional ones that we're we're all familiar with like sanctions um and political pressure to you know even more subtle things such as this movement to have Russia removed from the human rights council um, so are, is this the sort of response you were hoping for when you developed R2P? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be honest with ourselves and recognize that it was not R2P and not 
atrocity crimes that was really driving this international response in the first instance. It was the breach of another huge norm against non-intervention, against intervention in uh, aggressive intervention in other countries. I mean, Russia has just torn up an absolutely central element of the international rule book. Uh, that's been in place and universe, pretty much universally observed since 1945. And that, that, more than anything else, drove this intense international reaction that we've seen. But as atrocities are increasingly coming to light, and this is now a, a daily occurrence, um, the two issues, the two normative um, imperatives have, I think, come together, the imperative to respond to cross-border aggression and the imperative to respond to atrocity crimes. Um, and what we're seeing is a huge array of toolbox issues uh, being applied, as you say. Um, obviously, all the, the naming and shaming and diplomatic stuff that's going on, uh, obviously, the sanctions that are going on, the military support that's being given, not in the form of direct troops and, and taking military action, but supporting uh, Ukraine's capacity to defend itself and address these issues itself. Uh, the whole, the whole, and, and of course, the mobilisation of the various international institutions from the International Court of Justice through the International Criminal Court, through the uh, Human Rights Council in Geneva. I've got some reservations about um, you know, banning Russia from participation in multilateral forums. Um, that's potentially sort of counterproductive in the longer run. My own instinct is that it's better to keep them th there and, uh, and give them a barrage of negative attention when they turn up at these meetings and make it clear that they're, uh, they're persona non grata. Uh, but that's, that's an argument I think uh, we're going to have for some time yet. I mean, it's arisen in the context of the G20. It's arisen in the context, as you said, of the, uh, the participation of the, uh, the Human Rights Council. There is a sense in which it's intolerable that people, uh, countries that don't accept these norms, you know, should be in some decision-making uh, position of authority in, in relation to their pursuit. Uh, I, I obviously understand that. But uh, if you're going to sort of you know, get people back into the international fold. I think you have to be um, sensitive to the need to not overdo the exclusionary stuff, um, but uh, to find other ways of getting your story across and getting effective action. But no, the, um, it has been heartening, obviously, the international response uh, to Russia's appallingly legally and morally indefensible behaviour. And uh, I think it's, it's given all of us some new hope that um, the age of cynicism and, and fake news and double standards and, and uh, untruth um, is, is not necessarily going to be dominant for the future, that there are other currents still running in the international community, and it's those that we uh, we have to seize and harness. Absolutely. And, and how would you compare um, sort of the response now to the situations that maybe receive a little less attention from the international community, such as Ethiopia um, or even Myanmar, you know, pre-2016 and 2017 at the, the start of the genocide? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, um, the international community's response to those cases has been very much uh, less than less than ideal. Um, in Myanmar, my own region, even my own country's uh, response has been cautious in the extreme in terms of uh, being unwilling to apply sanctions and uh, generally to to uh, to put Myanmar in the uh, 
you know, in the dock where it deserves to be um, under the generals. And I think, uh, you know, it is a little troubling that, um, you know, you get a big response when when it's a essentially a European country and a European culture and European citizens that are uh, that are in strife from atrocity crimes as compared with, um, you know, people in, in faraway countries of which the... Uh, you know the mainstream international players uh, are not directly with which they're not directly involved. Um, so there is this element of blindness, I would say, um, not so much indifference, but just blindness to the scale of what's going on in some of these um, other smaller countries. Um, there's always, you know, countervailing issues in in Yemen. It's the desire of you know, the big European guys and the Americans not to sort of offend unduly the Saudis and the the Gulf states who are doing battle. There's the Iranian dimension of it, which is complicated matters. In uh, in Myanmar, there's all sorts of other issues which are uh, sort of inhibiting an effective response. I mean, China is a crucial player, but China's own commitment has been uh, been less than stellar to this. And how you mobilise that, how you mobilise effective performance by the Southeast Asian countries um, in ASEAN, of which Myanmar is a member. Um, it's been a very frustrating enterprise and there are many, many fingers you can point at many, many different players for their, uh, their the lack of attention to this. So we, we do have the task ahead of us to translate this, this wonderful aspiration of R2P you know, from just a rhetorical principle to an operationally effective one. But, um, you know, I think bit by bit by bit we are getting there and uh, we just have to, you know, maintain maintain the rage and maintain the, the action and the engagement and the pressure. And, again, the, the kind of work the centre is doing, um, you know, through operating as effectively a secretariat for the, for the focal points, those people in 60 or more countries that are now identified as, as office holders within countries, as... As, as people to whose job it is, whose day job it is to keep track of these situations and to energise an internal response that's appropriate when they arise. This is an incredibly important development and um, we just have to keep gnawing and nagging away. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you'd like more information about the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, or populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.